and, and, and it is a mountain, but you know, one step at a time and it will take all of us. And um, yeah, all those issues that Jacob just shared are real. And, and to remember they're, they're someone's daughter, someone's mother, someone's sister. And I think that's really important. The education moves the change. You hear what I'm saying? Real players can relate because they the ones that was playing. Be great, be just great. wait. Yeah. We be really in the field. Really. Now we really on the mic. Speaking truly how we feel. Damn. For real. Yeah. Screaming hut one, hut two. Tell me what you gonna do. Coming off that edge, only way to stop is home. Good morning, good afternoon, or good night, wherever this may find you. I am JJ Adams. Stepping in for Ryan Phillips to uh, host this special episode of Move the Chains uh, podcast. I am much like Ryan Phillips, except maybe six inches taller, 100 pounds heavier with half the wit and intelligence. So I will endeavor to keep it to his ideal of what he intended this podcast to be, which was to tackle some very tough issues. And today we're having a very important conversation that we're kicking off right around National Truth Day, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, but that we vow to continue throughout the year. And as part of our commitment to honor truth and reconciliation, I also want to say that I'm truly grateful to be hosting this podcast from the unceded traditional territories of the Coast Salish peoples. So let's get right into it and uh, introduce our guests uh, joining us today. We have... Haley Bruce is a member of the Nambis First Nation in Northern Vancouver Island. She's a survivor, a daughter, a sister, a mother, as well as a lawyer focusing on Aboriginal law, family law, child welfare, fisheries law, Indigenous laws and governance, and Aboriginal business law. She's devoted part of her practice to restorative justice. And uh, Haley, thank you so much for being here. We also have Debbie Scarborough, a former provincial manager for women and children protection at the BC First Nations Justice Council, who she continues to work as as a contractor. She has worked in the RCMP Victim Services Provincial Anti-Violence Instructor as a provincial anti-violence instructor, a firefighter, a first responder, community coroner, soccer coach, basketball coach, foster parent. Wow. Uh, let me know if I forgot anything that is a <laughs> quite a quite the list. Um, also joining us, Jacob Furlop, Lions defensive back. Uh, thank you for being here. And of course, uh, Jamie Terrace, BC Lions legend and the current director of community partnerships. Uh, he's very involved in the BC Lions Indigenous Youth Program. They be more than a bystander program. And uh, to end gender-based violence, as well as our team up to end racism programs. Welcome to you all. And thank you so much for being here. Let me know if I missed anything in your introductions. But yeah, we wanted to do a podcast about truth and reconciliation, reconciliation, but also to use this time to bring some awareness and dive deeper into some of these issues. And uh, before I get to that, I'd love to talk to each of you about what this National Day of Reconciliation, this is going to get me all night, reconciliation and truth means to you and what it should mean to all Canadians. And uh, Jacob, uh, why don't we start with you? Hey, Swill, Colloquial Telesquee. My name is Jacob, and for truth and reconciliation, I would say that we need truth before truth and reconciliation. So we're still in that phase. There's still not as much clarity as there should be about residential school system, even to the reservation pass system, and all the different angles that Indigenous people have been um, pressed through. So we got to address those. And then as for reconciliation, um, you know, Indigenous people, we weren't the ones that, you know, committed residential schools against other people, 
stole other people's land. Um, so there's got to be a lot of ownership uh, to a lot of, for a lot of non-Indigenous people just to, you know, acknowledge truthfully what's happened before we can make steps to build together on a firm foundation so that we can all move together, paddle together. Debbie? Yeah, thank you for that, Jake. That, uh, can I say ditto? Probably not. Um, so I, I just recently found out within the last couple of years that because uh, I came from an orphanage in Ontario that my birth uh, mother's grandmother was uh, Algonquin from Otter Lake, Quebec, um, as well as um, she has Scottish and um, Irish ancestry. And my birth father came from Hong Kong. So I'm actually five foot 11. Um, and um, so I guess truth and reconciliation for me um, really is that we have to we have to hear the truth. And it is difficult. This is about a candid conversation, move the chains. But it is a difficult conversation. And we probably all know people that don't want to hear it, um, or perhaps tired of hearing it. But um, we there's a lot of action that still needs to be done. Uh, we've outlined the actions that need to be done with the Truth and Reconciliation, with the Murdered and Missing um, Indigenous Women and Girls final report. There's a lot that still needs to be done and it will take all of us. It'll take every Canadian. Uh, so that's, that's what uh, this Friday means to me. Thank you. And Haley? Yeah, um, I think that's really, captures a lot of the feelings that uh, we as an Indigenous people um, have. I think for me, what, you know, truth and reconciliation, like Jacob said, you know, it has to begin with the truth. And that truth is not just for Indigenous people. That's a shared history. It's, uh, it's a shared history of, of uh, first friendship and relationship. And, and then to uh, one of, as Jacob said, you know, oppression and um, disenfranchisement and disconnection. So reconciliation is really about repairing um, that relationship and the harms that have uh, been caused by that, that relationship uh, to Indigenous people. But it is a shared history. It's not just unique to Indigenous people. Um, so for me, that's what we need to recognize. Uh, the truth, as Jacob said, comes before reconciliation, but reconciliation is an action. And we could take actions today, uh, each of us as individuals and certainly as a society, uh, there are certain things that we could do um, to start that healing. Mr. Terrace. Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, representing, I guess, the white, white Canadian here, I think uh, the truth was uh, something um, you know, I didn't know and, um, or perhaps uh, had heard uh, bits, but didn't open my ears enough to listen. And so, lot, you know, when, when we heard of the uh, confirmation of the 215 unmarked graves in uh, Loops uh, last year, um, you know, it was, it was a shock to me. And then that story spreading across the entire country. So I think that the whole idea of recognizing the, you know, the pain, the painful history um of residential schools and that 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 pain continues today that it you know that that it has passed on through the generations and understanding that as someone who's not indigenous having empathy compassion um and i think 
trying to do what I can as an individual and in the in the circle that I keep to engage with the Indigenous community in a positive way. I think that that's really what it means for me. It's interesting. It's only been a, a federal holiday now for a single year, and it took the discovery of that mass grave to bring it into the consciousness of, of most Canadians. And, you know, we're, we're only a year into it, but I do feel like that there is already a, a lot of pushback against it in terms of, you know, um, it being accused of some woke campaign or it uh, people are tired of, of hearing about all the, the bad things that happened in the past. Um, so let's start with you, Jacob. Like in, in terms of trying to get the message across and communicate and repair these relationships, uh, how do you go about making allies and not enemies or, or overloading somebody with, you know, what is a really heavy topic for, for a lot of people to, to kind of absorb? Yeah. So first, uh, to tie back to how you started, we could say that they were more recoveries or the start of a recovery process rather than discoveries at these mm. schools because a lot of our communities are very aware of what was going on. Um, but back to the question, uh, obviously person by person, but you kind of put the ball in their court, you know, like, hey, what have you learned uh, about First Nations people growing up? And then just kind of see where they're at and then you can just build off things from there. Or that's what I try to do personally because, you know, some people are aware of what's happened and uh, other people aren't. Uh, so, yeah. Debbie? Maybe. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, from a trauma-informed perspective is how I hope I'm walking through this life. Um, and um, and so whether it's, it's an opportunity, when, when I was with the RCMP as an auxiliary, um, uh, for seven years, I guess, before I was appointed to the parole board, it was an opportunity to educate. And so so the explanation of, of exactly what Jacob said, what do you know? Um, and when we get down to, and I am going to speak just briefly on intimate partner violence or murdered and missing, because a lot of uh, police officers were frustrated. They didn't want to go to calls that involved domestic violence. Um, and we ended up being the car that would respond to, um, you know, um, intimate partner violence that was in progress. Um, and to understand, uh, you know, where people are coming from, how we get there. Uh, we, don't, we don't just find ourselves as Indigenous individuals in situations where we intersect with crime, with child welfare, et cetera. There's a whole history. And um, so even on calls, uh, Haley knows this as a coroner today, where I work with uh, RCMP on a daily basis, it's an opportunity to educate. Um, and um, and I think that's that's a responsibility that I task myself um, personally, professionally, and socially is um, through that lens. And so if people make a very inappropriate or racist uh, comment, um, I, I'm totally comfortable at my age in, in addressing that and calling it respectfully because you always want to model, but saying, hey, what, the, did you just really say that? And of course that, causes either a conversation or them go, oh, well, that's not what I meant. Oh, okay. So maybe you can reframe it for me. What, what, what did you want to mean? 
Um, and uh, again, because I'm, I'm not going to be pushing it down someone's throat, but I do want everyone to be making informed choices and informed comments. Haley. Yeah. Um, it's an interesting question, one that we, we struggle with, and we've seen it, you know, in Black Lives Matter, Indigenous Lives Matter, this whole concept of allyship. And uh, I, I remember hearing Dr. Yaba Blay talk about this. Um, she has a, a book called One Just, Just One Drop, which is interesting because one of my elders told me uh, and others in uh, back in the 80s when we were talking about indigeneity and identity and indigenous women were challenging uh, the Indian Act, which disenfranchised many indigenous women and children if they married outside of of uh, the Indigenous community if they married non-Indigenous people. And uh, uh, a Nuchanov elder, uh, Agnes Dick, said just one drop and they're ours. Now, you know, when we talk about hierarchy of color and other things like that and identity politics, you know, I pass, I pass for white, I can walk through this world and I walk through the world with white privilege. I know when I walk in a room, I'm not afraid. I, I'm not uh, looking at the world as hostile, but my sisters, and, I, and, and there were five boys and five girls in my family. I know my sisters, uh, when they walk in a room, when my family members walk in a room, they're the ones who, who you know, they look and they, they have to see that they're safe. And so this whole idea of allyship, what Dr. Yaba Blake says is we don't need allies. I don't need your support. I need your action. And I think that's, that's the, the reality of it. Recognizing, uh, as Jacob said, the truth part of it, these deep historical and social and economic uh, laws and policies and practices that have uh, been imposed upon Indigenous people, creating an environment that renders Indigenous women in particular uh, vulnerable and at risk. Um, and, and then to really invite change, uh, a, a collaboration. Uh, we need uh, what, what she calls accomplices. You need, to put, you need to be putting yourself at risk to stand up and say, uh, to question your own beliefs and biases, and we all have them, and then to say, I'm willing to do something. So uh, putting those things into action and the invitation not to alienate people uh, walking in this world as a white looking indigenous woman has been really interesting because people do say things in front of me and always have uh, assuming uh, that I'm not indigenous. Um, and, uh, and I've had to respond in different ways. When I was younger, I responded in probably a more hostile kind of way. Uh, because it was very offensive. But as I've gotten older and mature, I, I can see the, uh, the nuances. And that's what we need to have, is a nuanced discussion, a very hard, difficult, nuanced discussion about the things that um, really underlay and upon which this country has been founded. And we share that history. We share uh, the, the, the steps that need to be taken. So when we talk about allyship, I always, I always think of what Dr. Blaze says, and, and I think that's right. We need accomplices. We need people willing to take risks and stand up and speak against, uh, you know, the, the racism, the stereotyping, the biases, including our own. And that's where it starts is with that truth and that awareness. You talk about nuance and discussions in terms of like building those bridges. Uh, another tool, uh, and we saw this during the, the, the BLM protests in the states is empathy yeah. um you know once people understand what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes 
they are far more likely to understand what the reality is like. Yeah. Um, you know, the, you could you could talk about how racist a country uh, the United States is. You you can talk about police violence, but until you're getting shot in the face with a rubber bullet, uh, just for standing there w- with a sign, uh, mm-hmm. you don't really understand what a large pr- portion of that population has gone through. Um, yeah. I think and, that's and what, I, that really is the lesson, right? Is like, I mean, this isn't rocket science. It's about compassion and empathy and putting ourselves in the shoes of uh, those people in the populations, uh, the people among us, BIPOC, Indigenous women. Um, you know, I, I have, I had two sisters. We were involved in the, we we're all survivors of the uh, 60 scoop. Our experiences were completely different. Uh, in large part, I think, one for one, uh, I stayed connected with my grandmother, my Indigenous grandmother, where my sisters were taken and separated. We were all in different homes, and they didn't have benefit of that connection. So they're radically disconnected from our community, our family, and, and I ended up living on the reserve, and I got my name, uh, I, I learned my culture. I believe it saved my life. Um, where my sisters, on the other hand, one died as a child in care, award of the court at 15, straight involved. She was at risk. She was an at-risk child. She became an at-risk youth, and she died uh, at 15, still award of the court. Where my other sister, uh, the one next oldest to me, uh, she was missing for 20 years. She was also uh, exploited at 12, uh, became street involved, and, uh, and went missing. And we looked for her for 20 years. Yesterday marked three years since we actually found her after I testified at the murder of missing women's inquiry. After we had an opportunity to give voice, uh, our family to give voice to our experience and you know our persistence to looking for her or finding answers, finding some clarity of what happened to her. As it turned out, she was in a long-term care facility in Toronto. Uh, and when I asked her the first time I got to FaceTime her, I said, how come you didn't tell them you had family? And she said, nobody asked. And that's the reality for indigenous people is that we're, we're invisible, we're silenced in, in various ways. Uh, and, and, and it's this history that we need to understand. And, and to actually start to question. And it's really about just learning to be compassionate. So when I talk about my sister, I understand that people don't really, they can't connect with it, but they can if I said, if it was your sister, if it was your mother, if you put yourself in my shoes. So just like you say, JJ, it's about empathy and really putting yourself in those shoes. Yeah. You, you raised a, a, an interesting point about it, you know, uh, um women being missing. And I, I know, Jacob, you have your, your tattoo, uh, the, the MMIW on your left arm, I think it is. You're trying to use your platform to, to raise some awareness of something that has been going on for decades, you know, dating back, you know, far beyond any time we were alive. Um, it, in terms of those that, that's a big part of the problem from what I understand is, you know, a lot of women especially go missing and uh, either they're missing, their absence uh, goes unreported or there's no interest in, in sort of tracking it down from a law enforcement side. 
Debbie, can you speak to maybe some of the, the challenges that families face when, you know, members of their family do go missing? Well, I think, you know, we, we don't have to look far um, because when you follow, I mean, I come from Terrace. I spent the majority of my life being raised there amongst uh, First Nations culture. Um, and uh, I have to say, you know, a number of, of the names of the murdered and missing from the Highway of Tears are girls I knew, girls I grew up with. We talk about adverse childhood experiences that are, you know, that uh, children are exposed to. Um, my first exposure with, um, with my colleague being murdered was grade seven. Her name was Alan, uh, First Nations girl. Um, and grade eight was Monica, um, you know, hitchhiking. Um, and so, and I don't think there's been the same interest. We have, I, I forget, you know, less than 200, I think. And maybe Jacob, you know, um, or um, Haley, um, the exact number that they're saying in BC, I would challenge that. Growing up in Terrace, I can't tell you how many of um, uh, Indigenous women that would say that a family member, their auntie or their grandma, you know, a white guy came into town, they were working at the cannery in Port Eddy, and then they disappeared. So it was just assumed that they went off with the white guy, but they were never heard from again. Those names were not put forward. And then should they, so Chelsea Poorman, we have a long list um, where the investigation was not done um, mm -hmm. to, um, what was it? Was it the United Nations, Haley, where it says that every death, every uh, death that was uh, of an indigenous woman will be investigated exhaustively. Um, and it is simply not being done. And I, I tell you, we feel, uh, I feel often that we are, we don't matter. We, you know, our lives are not important. Having worked with sexual violence and intimate partner violence since 1989, you know, I get questioned, why do your sisters, why do indigenous women do not, uh, don't report? Why don't they come forward? Well, if you've been told and treated like you're less than and you hold wasted space, why would we? And especially wellness checks where we get killed. So I think, um, you know, we all need to do better. I think we need to um, hold the police accountable or assist them. Um, and I am uh, actually working um, with the police, obviously, um, even with the decriminalization and the mandatory training and, and hoping that uh, a group of us can, can sort of bring that empathy and that compassion that we speak about uh, to the forefront and to the frontline police officers in this province, but certainly around this country. And Jacob, you you got that tattoo, and you you said you wanted to use your platform to to help bring awareness to that. What? How can you? What are the next steps? Like, what are there's awareness, and then there's a plan of action, and I think a plan of action is definitely what's needed. Can you tell me about the tattoo? And, and why you decided to get it and, and where we should go from here. Yeah, so to start, um, my perspective on uh, missing and murdered Indigenous women is privileged as a man who's also physically well-abled compared to, you know, women that, who are especially targeted. So um, 
I got the tattoo because as a professional athlete, I recognized that I was already going to be a billboard source for different things. So I just wanted to provide something. Um, make something meaningful of it and start to raise conversations about it because um, a large part, a large portion of the population involved with football isn't necessarily um, like deep into history of First Nations people, you know, as of recently. So there's, it's a very colonial environment in a sense. So if I can help spearhead that and, you know, raise a little bit of chatter about them and direct them to, you know, like these two matriarchs here, uh, grateful to hear you guys talk, but um, yeah, as a man, so I'd like to have, you know, young leaders, um, get the young kids watching, have them be gentlemen, leaders, healthy family relationships. Uh, as we all know, the residential school system created a lot of negative family dynamics on all ends and just prevent that. So we can just have healthy families uh, and learn all about our history. Yeah. And speaking Jay, of Jay, uh, I just want to jump in the uh, and just to piggyback uh, on what Jacob was saying there, because you know, and to acknowledge Debbie and Haley for a sharing their stories and their pain, and also leading the way. Because if you look at the history of gender-based violence in our country and around the world, it's always being started and led by women and what jacob said is the uh, you know the big part of uh, what we try to do with our be more than a bystander program was to add our voice to join our sisters in uh, speaking out against gender-based violence and that and that certainly was a missing piece why why when most of this violence is is being um um, it's happening because of the actions of men. Why is it women that have to uh, bear the brunt of this and lead the charge for changes? Uh, as, as men, as responsible men in Canada, in our community, we need to join with them and lend our voice. So I, I really think that that point's very important. And can I just say thank you for that? Um, because it will take all of us and it is male violence against women. Jackson Katz, uh, you probably know that history or know. He, tra he actually trained our first group of uh, Be More Than a Bystander ambassadors, uh, Jackson Katz and, and one of his colleagues came up and trained us. We were fortunate. Okay, so enough. I've met him a couple of times and brought him in. So it, it actually is, right? Male violence um, uh, per, uh, against women. So um, it will take all of us. And so happy to hold you up in whatever way we can. I, I had the chance to speak to a friend of mine who is a uh, RCMP officer. Uh, she's been on the force for 22 years now. She is also Indigenous. She's a female Indigenous RCMP officer. And I was talking to her about this because she also has a, a young daughter who is, you know, coming of age now. She's about to head off into the wild world and uh, about some of these issues and some of the issues that uh, she has faced. And she said a lot of the same things you guys have said, this, this generational um, cycle of abuse, the baggage that has been passed down from the residential school survivors to um, you know, their, their children and their children's children. Uh, she went through that. You know, she was you know, in a dysfunctional family, suffered abuse. She got out of it and she is now a police officer. And she was telling me about some of the challenges that she had faced as a police officer in this uh, fight to 
to bring awareness and, and, and get some kind of attention. Her own brother went missing and she pushed really hard to find out what happened, but didn't get any assistance. The only way she found out is when she became a police officer and she found out that he had actually been murdered in the States many years before. That was the only time she found it. And that is a systemic issue with the RCMP uh, when it comes to this. And I know, Debbie, you work with uh, police officers and training them. Are you seeing any changes? Are you seeing any improvement? Because I know there is a, a class action lawsuit that is actually coming up uh, very soon. I am. Um, but as a coroner, and we're just starting the, the training, um, and it's mostly to do with decriminalization, but what we're trying to do is also from a place of compassion and a trauma-informed lens is to understand why those of us that use, use. And when you're talking about Indigenous people and you talk about intergenerational trauma, um, addictions is rooted in trauma and often childhood trauma. So just to have officers that are approaching someone that may be in an altered state instead from a trauma-informed perspective instead of seeing you know uh, a drunk i'll say indian you look and you go i wonder what happened to that individual where they needed to numb so it's just a different way of looking at a situation but i can tell you that as a coroner i'm the lead so i'm going to have a different interaction with with police officers and in, in my present uh, position, but I'll get back to you in a year once we work on the uh, on the training. With uh, yeah, Kaylee, uh, I understand you you were speaking yesterday about your your sisters, uh, Lizanne and Lisa, and that you you don't mourn their death, you mourn their lives. Can you expand on that a little further? Yeah, um, you know, I think. I think it's important to understand the context of Indigenous people's lives, especially girls and women, and this history that we're talking about uh, that continues to exist. You know, the, in this country, there's legislation that applies only to Indigenous people it's called the Act. It has its roots in, in, in uh, colonization. It has survived, you know, the whole birth and, and uh, growing of Canada, and it, it exists with us today. And it impacts the lives, it impacted the, my life, my sister's lives, my mother's life, my grandmother's lives. Um, I have two daughters, they're young. Um, they have benefit of uh, my intergenerational healing, but they also uh, experience, you know, a lot of the, the, um, the racism when they walk out in the world. And I have to teach them about that and teach them ways to respond to that. My sisters didn't have benefit of that. One of the things that I think it's important for people to understand is it wasn't just the residential schools. There was a lot that predated residential schools. The, uh, uh, there's the Gradual Civilization Act. There's the Indian Act. Uh, they gave uh, you know, some support to the residential schools. And then following the residential schools was the uh, child welfare system. Uh, so our people have really dealt with system-induced trauma. And you asked earlier, why was it that, you know, why is it, um, you know, some people ask, why don't we report our people missing? Well, there's system-induced trauma and there's system-induced fear and distrust that prevent many people from going uh, to ask for help, 
of any kind. Um, you know, fear that your children will be taken. If you, you open that door, even just a little bit by a crack, there's fear. And, you know, when I reported my sister missing, now I want people to remember, I have an advanced degree uh, in law. The day that I reported my sister missing after my mother, an indigenous woman who'd been subjected to amazing violence in her life that led to her children being taken. You know, there's the saying that says uh, uh, a nation is not dead till the hearts of its women lay on the ground. There's no mistake that historically and presently there's legislation that makes it easier and in ways incentivize the taking of indigenous children. It's the quickest way to kill a nation, a culture, and a woman. And my, my sisters and I were caught up in that system. Um, the child supposed to be a protection system, it wasn't. My mother needed help. She didn't need her children taken. This disconnected my sister, Lisa, who became exploited at 11 years old on the streets of Vancouver um, and used because there was nobody who had eyes on her. There was no indigenous community, none of the protective factors that comes with culture and connection and family. And then the same happened with Lizanne, also 12 years old. They were at risk because they're easy to exploit. There's nobody watching. There's no grandparent, there's no aunt, uncle. You know, if a parent can't be there in our culture, when I say culture saves lives, it wasn't until I was older that I realized that when I ended up in my home community and our traditional community and living with my uncle, and I began to understand our own culture and our laws, that in fact, my uncle is my cultural father and it would have traditionally been under our law, his responsibility to ensure my safety and my protection. And he lived up to that uh, for me, but my sisters were already lost and gone in the system. So he couldn't do that for them. So I'm a big believer in the theory of multifinality. If you look at our different histories as individuals and as people, why is it that I survived? Partly I walked through the world with white privilege. Didn't change anything for me as a kid though. On paper, I was still an indigenous child and it was easy to take me. But I had one champion, my grandmother. Then I had two champions, my uncle. They saved me. My sisters didn't have that. And the lives that they did live was one of pain and violence at 11 and 12 years old on the streets of Vancouver. And so when I think of their lives, I mourn that, you know? I got to stand up in our big house and get my name Quenquilica. I got to put my feet in our river, Guatney, the Namgis River. My sisters didn't get benefit of that. Didn't get benefit of any of this. And this is the reality for many indigenous people because there's so few housing or employment opportunities on the reserve, what are we gonna do? We're gonna leave our home communities. There will be less eyes on us. There'll be less supports. And that renders us more vulnerable and at risk. So when I say that I mourn their lives, I, I really mean that. I, I mourn the lives that they, they had to live and the pain they had to carry. I'm grateful for, the, for today that we had the inquiry and that we're having these discussions because I think the day is now that they don't have to do that anymore. They don't have to walk alone anymore. And I think that's why it's important. I'm really grateful for, for the work that you're doing to move the chains, to raise awareness and, to, and Jacob, you know, to use this platform as a young indigenous man 
and saying, this is not our culture. Our culture is not violence. It's not this. We, we can be warriors again, and we could use our platform and our sphere of influence to change the trajectory of Indigenous people and women's lives. I think it's really important. I really honor the work that you're doing. Jamie. And may I just Sorry. also- Go ahead, Debbie. Yeah, if I can just add to that. Um, thank you, Haley, for that sharing is that, um, you know, I think as we're, we continue to be punitive. So most of us, if we become parents, will parent as we were parented because that's what we do, right? And then some of us will joke and say, oh, if I ever turn up like mom, or if I ever become mom, you let me know. Um, however, imagine if you grew up in, in an Indian residential school, as Jacob had alluded to earlier, imagine that. So there wasn't parenting, that was not parenting, where you speak your language, you do any, you try and connect with your, your family that may be in the same Indian residential school. Um, and so you grow up, you become an adult, you may numb, you may use addictions to numb that trauma and you become a parent. What do we have to draw on that nurtures and feeds us? Where's our culture? Where's our tradition that holds us up and that uh, helps us become whole and, and a healthy family? There is nothing to draw on traditionally and what we grew up on. So what, what happens is then we get further punitive action and our children are taken. And then it's like, why would I? Why would I become sober? Why would I face all the trauma and all the fears? It hurts to heal. It is not an easy job to heal and to walk that path. And yet to get our children back, that's exactly what we have to do. We don't get housing to even um, house our children until we're, we're straight or we're sober. Um, so it's, you know, this empathy needs to go far and wide. Uh, it needs to be all government agencies um, and all systems in this country. Uh, when we even look at the incarceration rates, um, you know, we know that Indigenous people, are, we comprise five to six percent of this entire country's population, and yet we're overrepresented um, in jails, up to 40 and in some places 50 percent of those incarcerated are Indigenous. Our youth in British Columbia, 50% of all the boys and girls or the youth in prison are Indigenous. And we're more likely, our youth, to go into solitary confinement. We're more likely to serve our full sentence. Um, so we have a lot of work to do. And again, I'll, I'll echo Haley. Um, this is a great form and, and hopefully this will push it forward. And I love the fact that you have the tattoo, Jacob. Yeah. I just want to give an example too of like when I did report my sister missing. Um, what, one of the reasons like, you know, my mother went through a lot trying to report her and actually uh, sort of one of my older brothers, he tried to report as well, well, well before I did. Um, and I didn't know this until this past summer when we had a family reunion and, and, they told me and I, I was, I probably shouldn't have been stunned, probably shouldn't have been shocked, but uh, they were said, told the exact same thing when they tried to report my sister missing as I was. And again, like I said, I have an advanced degree in law, but when you're making that, when you're making that report, you're a sister, you're a child, you're a woman, you're a family member, you are not a professional, you know, you're, 
you're triggered, your trauma comes out, you think of all the ways and all the opportunities that existed that could have helped but didn't, you get a flood, right? You know, and then you're flooded with, with, uh, with emotion. And when I reported my sister um, missing, the RCMP officer said, well, how do you know she even wants to be found? And that's what you get when you report. And you don't even know what to say at that point, right? Like you don't, you just don't. And I'm a lawyer. I didn't know what to say to that. What I did say is, I can't believe you're saying that to me after I was able to catch my breath and not swear <laughs> at the police officer. This was in the days that we had known about Willie Picton. We knew that Picton, we, we, the farm had been discovered. Uh, the, the connections were being made. They were starting to identify women. And this RCMP officer had the nerve to say that to me as I am reporting my sister missing. And I said, you have heard about the missing Indigenous women, haven't you? And he said, yeah, well, you know, but how do you know that she wants to be found? So just another Indigenous woman missing. And uh, I did have an opportunity. So what happened, I, made, I, I testified at the Murder of Missing Women's Inquiry. Um, they referred the file back to the RCMP from the commissioner saying, you know, we really think you should take, take another look at this case. And in doing so, we discovered that um, not only did they not do open a missing persons file, they just did a, a health and wellness check at her last known address, but they had her birth date wrong. There was a, a ton of misinformation. The RCMP officer hadn't even really paid attention to what I was saying. And then it was sent to the wrong detachment. And the cold case guys came uh, to get the right information. And one of them said to me, you know, I just want to say, you know, we're really sorry that this, you know, you're experiencing that. But, you know, 99% of the times we get it right. <laughs> I was so pissed off. And I'm going to do a little swear here and I apologize. Um, I said, I don't give an F if you get it right 99% of the time. My sister is the 1% and you messed it up. And, um, but the, the good thing is, so what happened after that was they reopened the file. They looked at it. They had the right information. They took the right steps. They, they actually opened the missing persons file. Within two weeks, they found my sister in that care home. After 20 years, two weeks, that's all it took. How did that and, feel? Oh, I can't even tell you. It was, it was actually around my birthday. So three years ago. And I was just, I was stunned. I couldn't even believe it. Uh, they were crying. The RCMP officers, the cold case people, they were crying. I was crying. We were all crying uh, it, with joy and sadness because it took that long when it could have been a lot simpler and it could have been 20 years before. Now, my sister suffered a, a brain damage. Um, so she actually doesn't generate uh, um, conversation on her own yet. She have to ask her questions. So that's why, and nobody asked her if she had family. But at the end of the day, the RCMP, you know, apologized. They said, what could we do? And I said, you know what? I'd really like to sit down with the RCMP officer who took the report. I really want him to know what happened. I want to know what it was that caused him to treat it that way, to treat me that way, to ask that question. And maybe together in a circle, we could come to some understanding because it caused years and years of pain for us as a family. 
So I met the RCMP officer. I, I raised my hands to him. He was willing to do it. And he said, I didn't even remember you. I don't remember anything about it. So not a big surprise. But through is that- it, Sorry to interrupt, Haley. Is it getting any better? I mean, are, are the, is the indigenous no. community feeling like they're getting a better response from the RCMP? And why not? I mean, at the end of the day, mm. well, you know, I, I know there's systemic change, uh, systemic racism, uh, systemic policy. Uh, but you know how do we how do we how do we make it better? How do we in, improve the situation? I mean the 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 calls to uh, calls for action took place several years ago. You know mm-hmm. you know what action is being taken? What is happening? It, you know is it yeah. is the bar being moved in a in a better direction? Um, you know that that's you know and and if not why not? I mean I'm sure these are all the qu- questions you're asking. But we as Canadians should be asking those. All of us should be asking that question. Like someone said, all of us have to get in the boat and row the boat together um, or the canoe together. And that's uh, that's uh, what it's going to take. It's going to take all of us, right? Well, and that's what uh, Grand Chief Stuart Phillips says. Reconciliation isn't for wimps. You know, it takes yeah. courage. Yeah. We got we to gotta sit in these painful places, right? Well, we, we got two sit. courageous women here for sure. Between you and Debbie, I can tell you that just based on my impressions. Wow. But we got to sit in the pain and we got to have the conversation. And that, you know, this is one way, um, you know, to to recognize that shared history, but the shared present and moving forward and the healing. And I think that's what I wanted to share about the RCMP officer and his bravery, acknowledging that it probably took a lot for him to sit down with me and to face the, the family that that you caused so much pain to. And. He committed himself in that circle. We had an elder. We had a brushing off. Um, you know, he committed himself to educating his fellow officers. And, and uh, I think that's where it starts, right? I mean, as individuals and as a society, we have to take it one step at a time. But at every opportunity, when you're talking about not being a bystander, we need to be those upstanders. We need to, uh, it's reconciliation, as many of the Indigenous women say. Uh, I know the Union of BC Indian Chiefs, for example, is just publishing a guide about how to report your loved one missing. Um, And it's true. It's not just Indigenous women. There's a lot of Indigenous men missing as well. But how that we even need a guidebook, a playbook to report our loved ones missing kind of tells you we got a long way to go. But this is a start. And and I think, um, you know, elevating the discussion, bringing it out into the open, and, uh, you know, knowing that then we can't unring the bell, you know, we really can't. And to think that even the, the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girl final report that was released in June of 2019, that was compiled from over a hundred reports. So we have been, Indigenous people have been sharing their story and saying what they needed for many, many years. And, um, and, and, and I think it's happening I mean, look at the BC lions are involved. Um, it, it is happening and it is men and women and youth and children being involved. So I'm hopeful. And I think Haley and I are both optimists. We're realists, but we're optimists. And I think it will, I think it will get better. We're doing the work and nobody can keep us quiet. <laughs> Jimmy, let, let me ask you this as, as a, you know, a self-admitted white man, as you have said, uh, born in this country, do you remember hearing about residential schools growing up? Do you remember hearing about the Highway of Tears? Like, when was the first time you heard about that? I'm curious. Yeah, certainly not part of my education growing up through school. 
and I hope I hope that's changed because that's that's a big part of it. Hearing the real truth, the real truth of Canada, and a, a lot of times, as human beings, we don't want to face the hard truth, the hard facts. Uh, we don't want to see the dirt. We just want to see the good stuff. But in order to grow as a country and as individuals, we have to be willing to look at the the ugly side of things as well, and to acknowledge our role in it and and to also look for ways that we can improve the situation moving forward so to, to answer your question I, I didn't hear anything about it uh once i got involved uh, obviously moved out to bc i had heard about the highway of tears once i got involved with the eva bc the ending violence association of bc met met tracy porteous um you know she's another courageous woman who was not afraid to to share the reality of the way things were. And I, I learned an awful lot. And I, and thankfully I, I opened my ears and listened because that's a big part of it as well. So, you know, uh, to answer your question, I, I knew very little. And even though I'd heard about the residential school system um, and I knew about it for many years, I didn't recognize um, the, the pain, the, the uh, abuse, the uh, the whole nature of the residential school system. I didn't understand the reality of what it was to have your culture stripped from you, to be separated from your family, to you know, to not be allowed to see your family, to not be allowed to speak your language. I, I didn't recognize how uh, how horrible uh, that is. And I, you know, as as a parent of two children, uh, having having my my kids taken away, I just I, I can't imagine that. Well, I can tell you, even um, even now, I have seen Indigenous women threatened in public. Like, I don't know how people feel that they have the right to approach an Indigenous woman carrying her child and saying, you're not carrying that baby, right? Are you sure you're not going to smother that baby? Like, would you, can you imagine somebody doing that? You're just carrying your baby in the store. Um, but you asked earlier, you know, law is not neutral, right? Uh, we have a lot of laws that are on the book still that continue to impact um, Indigenous people. Um, and I think it's important, you know, these discussions to recognize that, um, you know, their colonization and there are certain laws that continue uh, specifically target Indigenous women in very real ways and, and, and render them vulnerable and more at risk. Um, so, you know, you know, it's like I said, not just the residential school, but marriage out or the 60s and millennial, they're calling it the millennial scoop now because it continues as soon as the residential schools closed, uh, gave rise to the child welfare system and the taking of indigenous children into the child welfare system. Um, there's things like blood quantum and status and non-status, these designations, legal designations about who is and who is not uh, uh, Indian. Uh, all of that, you know, um, is in place, has displaced and disconnected, um, denied, silenced, and obscured the voice and power of Indigenous people and, and women. But we're also a culture of strength. And we, ha we, we have resilience, we have resistance, we have a lot to draw on uh, as we stand up our own laws and our traditions. I think even in the area of environment, you, you know, I think there was a, a report recently um, by the UN or the World Health Organization or one of the, um, the bigger international bodies that said, well, the answer lies within a lot of the indigenous practices and laws and teachings, you know. Uh, so we have that. We have post-traumatic growth as well as, you know, uh, uh, 
I, I think that's important to, to, draw, to, to realize and draw on. And, and we start to explore that. Now that we know the truth, this is where we need to move, I think, is looking at the strengths uh, that we all have to offer, that we can all bring to the table. And, and we can all do a little bit of something, like, like Marie Sinclair said. We can't, maybe you can't do it all, but you can all do a little bit of something. And then there's also the laws too, Haley, where we talk about UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People. So, um, you know, Article 7.2, which actually states, and, uh, you know, I'll be very, really, really fast, uh, JJ, it says Indigenous peoples have the collective right, and don't forget our Prime Minister signed this, Trudeau signed this, Indigenous peoples have the collective right to live in freedom, peace, and security as distinct peoples and shall not be subjected to any act of genocide or any other act of violence, including forcibly removing children of the group to another group. And, you know, there's more, uh, but for, I think at some point we have to also, what well, we, we do need to hold our government, federal, provincial, municipally, we have to hold accountable. Um, absolutely. And, and I love the way Jamie, you said, you know, you can't imagine your children being taken. And if everyone, if everyone could put that, their comments before they spoke, or even just to imagine what that may have felt like, um, to have your children ripped out of your arms and for some to never be seen again. And there's still people that don't know what happened to their relatives and to their children. Like how in the hell can that happen? And if we can all pause for a moment and just even think about that, you know, in our prospective jobs, imagine the difference we would make as a police officer when I go out or as a Ministry of Children and Families social worker before I remove, I think about that. On what grounds am I going forward? On what lens am I making the decision that I'm about to make from? It brings it back to empathy, right? It brings it back to that understanding. And, uh, you know, Jamie, when I asked you about, you know, did you know about it? Uh, it? It's in terms of, you know, what Orange Shirt Day is doing. Some may see it as, you know, a, a virtue signaling, but I see it as a, as a great first step because, you know, when that six-year-old is wearing the orange shirt and asks his parents why, they get the story, they get told, they, they understand the history. And then that's the start of a very long generational progress or uh, process to help undo this generational trauma that's happened before. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 I think it's a, it's a great step. I hope we don't end up in this country with a cultural schism, like in the States with critical race theory and how, you know, things, history is trying to be erased. I, I hope Canadians really truly embrace their history and, and try and work forward or move forward working together uh, with it. Um, I think I think when I also, you know, I, I think we need to talk about the, you know, the, the, the action part of it. Um, we need to recognize that systems are created by people. Uh, systemic racism is created by people. Um, and, you know, to disrupt that, it, it takes acknowledging it, right, as individuals uh, in our own circles and the systems we work in. And then we need to then take you know, commit uh, and pledge to working with Indigenous people to change that and to rebuild, uh, you know, our, our world. Uh, I, I think this is, a, you know, one of the, one of the efforts here, you know, in this podcast is to do that. 
you know, we get exhausted by the number of reports that are calling for change. Uh, I know as indigenous people, we feel that we're old, you know, we've been studied, we've been reported on. I mean, there's, there's inquiries that go back, you know, a hundred years and, uh, you know, what we need now are, are to take the steps. Um, there's a, there is a playbook out there. There's a lot of recommendations that came out of the TRC, the calls for justice, uh, the murder and missing women's inquiry, final report. Uh, now, you know, there's, there's, there's a bit of uh, work that needs to be done to, to flesh that out. Uh, but that is going to take collaboration. And that is the only way that uh, society will transform. Why don't we go around the horn and get some final thoughts uh, as we as we wrap this up? We could do you know five five separate podcasts on this subject. Um, Jacob, what what are some of your thoughts as as we yeah. think about our discussion so with indigenous issues? You know, there's always so many different directions we want to go: residential school, sixty scoop, um, MMIW, uh, land issues. So we've talked a lot about MMIW. So I kind of want to relate that to. The treatment of the land has also reflected the treatment of our women. Um, so if we look at BC, for example, it's unceded Coast Salish territory. Um, so that means Canada has no legal title to the land. So there's that whole issue. But say when we look at resource extraction, of which Canada has become very wealthy of, off of, um, we also see that same dehumanization to our women. So with MMIW, it's a combination of dehumanization and hypersexualization too. So uh, you're talking, you mentioned before, like the, the started like decades ago, but we can say it started centuries ago at the start of colonialism. So for example, Pocahontas is a famous Disney story. Um, that's not a real name. Pocahontas was like a slur that meant like naughty one. So she was basically a child who was sex trafficked. And after she was in England, I believe that she was murdered after she gave birth to a child there. And uh, I believe her real name is uh, Matoaka. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, but yeah, and just to add on to some of the other ways Indigenous women are targeted, uh, there's forced and coarse sterilizations. So sometimes uh, they'll just encourage women to get hysterectomies or just do them without letting people know. Uh, or withholding a baby from someone before they agreed to be sterilized so that they can receive the baby. Um, yeah, so some of the numbers to wrap it all up, it's like indigenous women are 12 times more likely than white women to go uh, missing or murdered. Um, in the United States in 2016 of the 5,700 cases, only about a hundred cases were logged in. So, you know, that's, that's, that's barely a fraction um, and also to kind of jump back to the treatment of the land and treatment of the women um, there's the large discussions of pipelines in Indian country um, Indian country um, one thing that's also been brought to notice where we can start to make changes is that the man caps associated with these pipelines and other uh, big commercial processes like mining um, those man camps are known to be tied to MMIW. So um, Indigenous women are targeted by legal savvy predators because they know that there's all the jurisdiction loopholes. So it's same in the county of the United States. So we don't really have jurisdiction of non-Indigenous defenders. 
and you know so there's so many loopholes with the with that person you know go under like a, a federal or provincial um, court cases and there were um, sorry like a, like your local city municipality like there's so many different loopholes where like cases fall through and other times you know like truckers you hear so many stories about that you know by the time they find the missing woman they're already halfway across the country um yeah so these man camps and the cultures there um, good place to start and even uh, not many to not many people know about the reservation pass system as well where yeah. you need legal permission from an indian agent to go back and forth but uh, one lesson known is that Indigenous sex workers didn't need that pass. They could go back and forth. So that's contributed to it. Um, and, you know, and part of the pressure that kind of creates that too is that like Indigenous people, we weren't allowed to get any other jobs other than basic manual labor. So like in BC, you know, there's a lot of uh, people who are lumberjacks, for example. Um, and, you know, if you didn't want to go to school, you have to give up your status. Or marrying someone else, you have to give up status. So this, this is just so many things that we talk about the Indian trust fund too that's a whole other thing but yeah if you guys have any other thoughts <laughs> I can see the hear the frustration at, at seeing yeah. on your face of this issue it just it it must seem very overwhelming at, at times or not overwhelming but just daunting uh to to try and fix this issue which we still see I mean we talked about Chelsea Poorman uh you know uh Noella Soup was 14 years old and I think she was found you know, not too far away from from Chelsea. Um, Debbie, what are your thoughts on <laughs> on well, this mountain that we're trying to encompass? And, and and it is a mountain, but you know, one step at a time, and it will take all of us. And um, yeah, all those issues that Jacob just shared are real. And and to remember, they're they're someone's daughter, someone's mother, someone's sister. And I think that's really important. The education piece, you know, for Jamie to find out, maybe not in you know um, primary or elementary school, or maybe even not high school. Um, we need to educate ourselves. So um, you know, the Pocahontas story, where that young girl between eleven and twelve was shipped back to England, and uh, that and and I think you probably did pronounce it properly. Um, but also the ombudsperson's report that that uh, I actually had uh, was semi-involved with um, providing feedback on the solitary confinement for youth in British Columbia. Um, they call it separate confinement, but you know it's basically. And I've been a coroner uh, up in the north so that I could honor First Nations protocols, death protocols. That's why I became a coroner in 2006, um, and I found it difficult to read report I had to put it down several times it is so disturbing what we do to our youth um, and mostly indigenous in our um, solitary confinement um, the birth alerts we talked about and you know when we talk about land uh, and still the I was involved in feedback on earth deployment our emergency response team deployment and um, so they went through all the criteria and I said so I I don't see where we can deploy ERT to arrest matriarchs defending their land from LNG or PNG going through. I don't see that. When there was no threat to life or violence, how can you arrest and jail a matriarch who's defending her land? 
And I just wanted it on the record. Um, they didn't really have an answer. Um, but I, I suggest that, yeah, we all, uh, as Jacob and everyone here probably has done, but for others listening to this podcast, um, let's educate ourselves on the issue. And then what can we do as an individual, as a professional football player, as everyone that has their role here? Is, it is our responsibility to make sure history, history does not repeat itself um, and that we do have empathy. Um, as we walk through. And thank let's, you for the opportunity. No worries. Let's, let's go to, to, to Jamie uh, before we let Haley close things out. Uh, Jamie, listening to this, you know, what do you feel like you can do to, to be an ally? And you get to be the, the, the token and, and speak for all of uh, white Canada here. So please tell us some of your thoughts. Well, I think the first thing I just want to thank uh, Debbie and Haley and Jacob for uh, everything they've said, because it's learning, right? I'm learning. I've learned an awful lot in this uh, short period of time. And I think that's a huge part of it. Uh, everyone's spoken about education and learning and, and, and being willing to listen to the real truth and then to figure out uh, what I can do. I mean, one of the things I am very proud about in terms of our organization is uh, our efforts for the Orange Shirt Day coming up this Friday. Um, you know, we, we kind of did it last year uh, very quickly. We put it together last year very quickly uh, because uh, of the timeline. And this year we had more time. We were able to, you know, bring on an advisory committee where we we did bring on the host nations and the Métis Nation and different organizations. So we listened to the Indigenous community. We asked for their opinion on what we were doing. And, uh, and you know, and they let us know some things we could do better. And so I think hopefully uh, we will address some of those things on Friday and have a uh, a great day to honor uh, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. And, that, and that's something I'm very proud to be a part of. And then as an individual, you know, having the courage to speak up when I, you know, when I, when I confront racism, when someone says an off-color joke, when someone, um, you know, does something to hurt or belittle uh, somebody's race or culture, uh, and then examining my own stereotypes and internal biases. I got to look at the way I look at people and, and Indigenous people and, and recognize uh, acknowledge um, perhaps the, the challenge, step in their shoes, the challenge that they have had to overcome that I have not. And uh, so, you know, that comes to, that, that comes not only with Indigenous people, but all people of color, because, uh, you know, because because of my white privilege, I have not, I have not had to live that life, as you said. So I think that those are all things that, that I can do, and that uh, I'm trying to do, to, to make things better. And, and like, and like, the group said it's it is one step at a time it can be overwhelming but pick one thing pick one thing you know add one bit of love one bit of uh, hope to somebody's life and it'll it'll help change things yeah like you said it's those little things those little steps correcting those those jokes that someone may think is funny but are actually quite hurtful like uh, changing your perspective i think every uh, native uh, guy i knew growing up his nickname was chief everyone called him chief just that was just what they did. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's the little steps that, that we have to take. And uh, Haley, we uh, will close it out with you. Well, first I wanna thank you again for inviting me to be in this virtual circle here to explore some of these issues. And it is, we've only scratched the surface and we've hit on some pretty big uh, issues and, and they're very deep and they can be very traumatizing and shocking for some people. Um, you know, uh, 
there's always a little bit you can learn, you know, by by just uh, uh, talking to other people. You know, uh, I remember hearing uh, a young Indigenous runner speak. She's using her platform in the States as a runner. Um, she would run, and a young Indigenous woman should run with the, the red hand symbol on her mouth. And when people asked her, why, why are you doing that? So, you know, Jacob has MMIWG on his arm, um, you know, the tattoo. And just learning that, you know, that hand really uh, is a symbol of a growing movement. Um, you know, standing for missing sisters and mothers, daughters and granddaughters whose voices were never heard, uh, who've been silenced. That's what it symbolizes. And going beyond that symbology into the real meaning of it and then acting on, the, on that uh, knowledge, right? Because that's really what it is. The Law Society of BC, for example, now requires uh, all, indigenous, all lawyers to take an Indigenous uh, cultural competency course. That includes Indigenous lawyers, which is a lot of fun for me. <laughs> it's probably one of the easier law courses I've ever taken. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you it was pretty head cracking doing real property when you have these different concepts about land and property in law school. But you know, uh, you know, inviting people to be transformative thought leaders. You know, we need to recognize that this is our time. Um, we stand at a point in history where we can we can chart a different course. Um, you know, we, we, we need to understand that uh, that weight of that history that impact Indigenous people and women in particular and how that shows up in our lives. Um, you know, we don't need to carry that burden alone anymore. Uh, we're bringing these things into the light and we're honoring the words of the people who have shared their voice and their experience. Um, you know, who up until recently, you know, many people didn't get to hear these stories and we're able now to reflect on, on that. What is it that, that leads to, to these intergenerational impacts? And that includes not just indigenous people, but Canadian society. I think the discovery of um, the recovery, as Jacob said, of the, the, the indigenous children at the residential schools really woke people up to realize that they don't live in the country that they think they do. You know, for us, it wasn't surprising. Uh, and we were all very triggered deeply and we experienced collective trauma um, through every, every recovery. And we honor and remember our parents and our grandparents and the other survivors who have come forward to share their experiences. You know, so, and bearing witness to the physical and sexual abuses that, that they experienced in, in the schools. Um, you know, we have to ask ourselves, how does gender and race and structural violence show up in our own lives? Uh, I think it's an invitation now today, not to just explore if racism underpins Canadian society and the systems that we live under, but to acknowledge it, it just is. And then we need to look at those and we need to, to take those apart and find ways to then disrupt that. Uh, it could be policies, it could be training, it could be education on implicit bias. Um, it could be, you know, rec reconciliation has to become a verb and, and, that, and it has to be a very proactive thing. So 
you know, we like like I said before, you know what Justice Sinclair said, we can all do a little bit of something. Um, it's it's not enough anymore just to to say that these things exist. We know that uh, uh, that they do. We can't be neutral, um, and it's no longer okay for for us to carry that alone, that burden, right? Um, it's no longer just us anymore. At the end of the day, I think our goal has to be uh, to start and keep the dialogue going, but more importantly, to inspire individuals to look at themselves, to look at their lives and engage in that work to say, um, you know, what can I do? Um, so I, I think that's, that's really for me, the important thing about reconciliation, uh, the Truth and Reconciliation Day, uh, the Murder of Missing Women's Inquiry taught us that if we wanna do anything about violence against indigenous women and people, we have to bring it into the light and we have to be brave enough to talk about it. And then we have to lean in when it comes, becomes very uncomfortable. Um, and it's, it's uh, I think that's where we're at in society today. So uh, understanding that our differences are, are used to justify inequalities even today. Um, and then disrupt that, that legacy of colonialism and privilege and power uh, that give rise to racism and, and, and that protects other people's power and privilege. So I think that's it. We need to engage on a contemplative walk and become thought leaders and actors um, in, in rebuilding and reconnecting and repairing the harm in the relationship between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Well said, Haley Bruce. Well said. Thank you so much for, for joining us today to help us do our little bit of something. I, I, if we help one person's mind open up, I think we've done our job. Um, Debbie Scarborough, Jacob Furlot, and of course, Jamie Terrace. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Move the Chains. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you, Haley. Thank you, Jacob and JJ. Thank you. Let's turn it up one time. You did. We move the change. You hear what I'm saying? Real players can relate because they the ones that was playing. Be great. Be Just great. wait. We yeah. be really in the field. Really. Now we really on the mic. Speaking truly how we feel. Yeah. For real. Yeah. Screaming hut one, hut two. Huh. Tell me what you gon' do. Yeah. Coming off that edge. Only way to stop is hold. Only you. Way. Never let the gatekeepers control you. Never. Once you lose your voice, now they definitely know they own you. But not I. Not Rob me. Phillips coming so fly. Pick yeah. six on the way. When that ball's in the sky. They say time is money. And, and I I wonder why. why, now I know that's a goddamn lie, let's go. Come and get game from the, the chains. Everybody love it when you move the chains. Haters hate to see me really do my thing. Move the chains, move the chains. Let's go. The, the number one podcast. Move the yeah. do my thing. Getting this dough, you know how it go. Grab you know. a seat and tune in, then tell me what you know. Please. Back when TIP said, get it on the floor. RP was on BC putting on a show. For show, For screaming show. touchdown, touchdown. touchdown. Uh -huh. Everything you want now. Fans be the chain gang, game every month every now. Month. Don't even try to front now. These new dudes be something like my son uh, now. Come on, now. I'm better than ever. The game that we speak gotta be clever. Ball hard no matter the weather I cheese for the picks while I'm counting this cheddar On my mama boy I never will let up So you know I gotta get up and run Just come and get came from the chains Everybody love it when you the chains Haters hate to see me really do my thing Move the chains, move the chains 
Let's go.